Hello and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. This is the 24th podcast and it is the one year anniversary. We started this in January 2015 and it's now January 2016. So a whole year of these and this is the 24th and actually the 25th because I'm speaking to Christina Gad, who's a real expert in accelerated learning. And we're going through her model of five secrets of accelerated learning and it lasted over an hour and I decided that instead of cutting it down and potentially losing quite interesting bits in the conversation, I thought I'd just split it into two and have two half hour podcasts. But then I thought I can't really leave it a month before giving part two so I thought I'd just release the two parts at the same time. That may be a wrong decision, I don't know, but it just felt like the right thing to do. I'm here with Christina Gad. Hi, Christina. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, John. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thanks for coming on this podcast. It's my pleasure. And your specialist subject really is around accelerated learning. Is that right? Uh, Yes, I was fascinated by it about eight years ago. Some of it resonated with stuff I was already doing, and then there was stuff that I learned that was new. I think it's always great when you read something that then confirms what you're doing is is right, especially in training where quite often you're you're learning through experience and learning through your own mistakes as well. Yeah, just fascinated by it, and I, and I keep learning new stuff as well, which is great. Yeah, I think it's great when you actually learn something and it does turn out to be right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a real sense of relief, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. And I think um, when I started off as a trainer, which was many, many years ago, I was an IT trainer. I learned by doing and I learned through my own mistakes, but also by watching other IT trainers. And some of the stuff um, probably wasn't good and wasn't helpful. I'll, I'll admit that. And I use those as bad examples these days of what you shouldn't do. But then some of it was good, some of it was instinctive, and some of the stuff worked. And so, you know, when I when I started reading about accelerated learning, it was great to sort of say, ah, that's why that works. And yeah, I'll keep that, but I'll stop doing that. Yeah, and I think something like accelerated learning is something I heard about, I don't know, maybe about 15, 20 years ago as well. And it always seems to become normal training, but with fiddly toys. Yeah, that that is one of the myths, really, and it it's it's fascinating for me when um, I bump into somebody who says, "Oh, yeah, we do accelerated learning," and I usually sort of adopt an air of curiosity and ask them, "Oh, so what is it you do?" And usually it tends to be, well, we have um, fiddle toys on the table and we put sweets out and we put posters on the wall and sometimes we play music in the background. And that is just such a small part of what accelerated learning is about. Um, So I'm on a bit of a mission, really, to sort of like dispel those myths and really, I suppose, um, expose people to what is um, a much broader subject than just fiddle toys and posters, basically, and a bit of music in the background. Because uh, although environment is important, and that's one of the things I know that will probably come up in our our chat today, um, although it's really important, it's not 
you know, the only thing. There's there's lots, you know, in there in, in terms of accelerated learning and what you should include and tools, tips and techniques. So, yeah, interesting listening to the myth. So you're going to talk us through what your overarching structure is of for accelerated learning. Yes, I'd love to do that. Um, one of the things that I found when I started to look into accelerated learning um, eight years ago was um, that I got frustrated that there wasn't just sort of like a simple checklist of stuff that you needed to do um, to be able to accelerate learning. And I read quite a lot of books um, and they were all fascinating, all with a slightly different emphasis and so what it prompted me to do was to look at all of the models and tools that are out there and, and the books that um, are there and try and look at sort of maybe, you know, some broad areas that you needed to pay attention to. And so I came up with uh, what I call my five secrets of accelerated learning. And um, I'll tell you a secret, John, they're not actually secrets, um, because if you actually read all the books, then basically you would come up with the same five broad areas and if you look at the models that are out there um, I haven't come across one yet that it doesn't that those five secrets don't apply to um, so for me I think if um, if you're learning about a new area um, it's always easy to sort of like say oh you know the four basic principles or the seven steps or you know the six key whatever so if I say to you there are five you know secrets um, and, and you should pay attention to those five areas it just gives you um, as, a, as a trainer five areas that, that you're going to pay attention to so do you want me to break down those five areas, John? Yeah, well, t tell us what all five are first, and then we'll go through them in order. Okay. And you can give us a little bit more detail on each of them. Obviously, we don't have time today to go into massive detail on each no. one. Okay, so let me tell you what the five key areas are then. The first one, which I think is the most important, is to have business-focused and learner-centered objectives. Um, the second one is about being a facilitator, not, not a trainer. The third one is about your learners and what do you need to know about your learners um, and, you know, how do you actually cater for lots of different types of learners. Um, the fourth one is about creating the right environment for learning. So that's going to be a physical, emotional and social environment. And the final one is about the brain and what do we know about the brain that's useful and how do we apply it um, to learning to make learning stick so those for me are the five broad brush areas that you need to to pay attention to if you want to accelerate learning wow so there is quite a lot in this isn't there there is an awful lot in it, and as I said to you, I could probably talk for a long time about it. But um, I'm I'm relying on you, John, to uh, to steer me and tell me to shut up when we need to move on. So, um, right, I'll do I, my best. Brilliant, excellent. Well, as two people from Leeds, we should be okay about being quite direct with each other. I would yeah, have thought. absolutely. Yeah, I am from the other side of the Pennines, though, so I must warn you about that. So, uh, but I'm sure you won't hold that against me. No, no, not at all. Okay. All right, then. So we were going to start with the first one of those, which was about the uh, the, biz, the business-centric, learner-centric objectives. Do you want to talk us through what we mean by that? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm always sort of fascinated um, 
by the fact that, um, you know, when I meet some trainers, they're really, really excited about doing the design and the delivery. Um, but somehow the needs analysis and the evaluation get lost somewhere. Um, and a lot of L&D professionals sort of shy away from those two areas. Um, but in the latest CIPD L&D survey from 2015, uh, one of the uh, figures that really sort of made me focus was the fact that only a quarter of the organisations polled said that they were fully aligned to the organisation. And for me, for their L&D, D teams are only fully aligned to the organization. So for me, that's quite a frightening statistic because if only a quarter of L&D teams are actually aligned to their organization, what are the other 75% doing? Wow, that's an incredible statistic. Yeah, it it is really and so that really I hope whoever's listening to this you know it makes them think about what are we doing and are we actually focusing the learning on the organization so in terms of how you actually do that well it does require some sort of analysis now some people call it a training needs analysis some people call it a learning needs analysis I, I'm a bit picky about it and I, I prefer to call it a needs analysis because if you call it a TNA or a training needs analysis, then what the output is going to be is a whole load of training that you need to do. And for me, if you're doing any sort of analysis on what the organization needs, it's got to be broader than that. So you can broaden it out to a learning needs analysis. So that means that not everything uh, not every solution is going to be uh, some training. So it might be, you know, budding up with somebody or shadowing somebody or it might be reading a book or doing some e-learning. So it's not all going to be about doing um, a training workshop. But for me, one one key thing is if I'm ever doing a learning needs analysis for any organization, what I'm thinking about in the back of my mind is what's really going on here? You know, so it's for me a needs analysis as well. So is there a process that isn't working? Is there something that's going wrong in a team, perhaps, that's nothing to do with actually learning something? Maybe it's the manager, maybe it's a team member. So for me, when, um, when, when I've done um, a good needs analysis, that leads to some really, really good business-focused objectives. And whenever I'm doing any sort of um, work with an organization, what I do is I have that conversation with them about what is it you're trying to achieve? What are you trying to get out of this? When I walk away from this, what do you want this to, to, to do to your organization? How are people going to be behaving? And if possible, I want something which is is going to make a difference sort of in terms of money or, you know, um, their impact on customers or whatever. So I'm trying to find out what the organization actually needs. Um, and a great example is um, about a year or so ago, I was doing some uh, work with a company in Yorkshire and um, it was a team leader development program and they came to me with a, a shopping list of training that they needed um, and when I sort of quizzed them about why they needed it, why now, why this group of people, the answer was basically that it because the senior team had had some training, they thought it'd be nice for the team leaders to have some training as well. Um, and I asked the question, well, if this all goes wrong and, and, you know, they're not better at managing time, they're not better at delegating, whatever, who are you going to blame? And it sort of really made the, um, the, the chief exec stop and think 
about what he was actually asking me to do. And in the end, he asked me to do a detailed needs analysis. And in the end, um, they didn't need time management training. Um, they actually were doing the day jobs and they were having to manage um, a team of people as well. So they didn't have the skills to delegate. They didn't have tools also for perhaps, you know, leading a project, some basic project management skills. And so there were a lot of things that they didn't actually have, which weren't anything to do with the shopping list that they originally came to me with, which for me confirms that quite often when L&D are asked to do something, uh, perhaps we as, as a profession don't quiz enough to find out what's going on because we're so eager to please. And I'm not saying that people are bad L&D professionals. That's not what I'm trying to get across. It's because we are people people. We want to please and we want to, to get a good result. So we launch into, yeah, of course we can do that customer service training and we can do that, um, you know, yes, in two weeks time or whatever, without really stopping to ask why and what's going on, what's happened, you know, could I just have 10 minutes of your time to be able to unpick what's really going on? So for me, the business-focused objectives are about, first of all, really digging deep to find out what is it the business really needs. And if the business doesn't need it, why are we doing it? I was talking to somebody not long ago about how they they determine what needs their people have and in the last year um, loads and loads of people have been in confidence building training um, and I said to this lady I said doesn't that ring alarm bells to you that everybody wants confidence building training what are those team leaders or the managers doing to them that are all lacking in confidence and then she said well I did dig deep actually and and find out what was going on and rumor had spread that it was a really good day out and so they were all going on this confidence building training. So again, it's sort of like, well, if it's not helping the business, why are we doing it? So the other the other part of it is um, the learner-centered objectives. And as much as I can... Can, can I just break you know, in there for a second? Sorry, yeah, just, sure, of course you can. I'm just, I'm just thinking about the point there you make about business-centered and learner-centered as two separate points. So just to summarize what you were saying on business-centered, yeah. do you think it must align to what the business is trying to achieve presumably at the sort of fairly high level in terms of mission and goals and values, but also in the more lower level of what are they actually trying to, what behaviours do they need in order to be able to deliver their results? Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. you get there through what you call a needs analysis, knocking the word off the front entirely, just so, yeah. you're, not, so you're not presupposing any kind of solution. No, that's right. So, yeah, and that could include actually uh, talking to the actual learners as well um, about, you know, what, what their particular uh, needs are as well. So, for instance, in the example I was telling you about the team leaders, um, one of the things that I did was actually send a survey out to those team leaders but first of all, I'd spoken to the senior team to find out what they thought the issues were. So that helped me to, to actually put together a survey for those team leaders. Um, and I gave them also, um, you know, a box where there's anything else, you know, you'd like to add. So, um, yeah, the business focus is about trying to drill down what the business needs. But that could include also talking to those learners as well. So uh, does that answer your question, John? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So um, why I've sort of put the, the learner centred as well is because um, quite often uh, what may happen is that, you know, some training is, is commissioned or some learning, whatever you want to, to call it, is um, commissioned and the learners turn up. And it's sort of like they've got a different agenda slightly, you know. Yes, okay, we've uncovered what their needs are, but actually they want something different. So they're all having to go on customer service training, for instance, because the customer satisfaction survey um, has not been what, what management expected it to be. But actually what they want to know is how they're going to achieve their bonuses every month. Now, if you get those learners in a room and you are solely focused on what um, the business really, really needs, um, then it's likely that you are going to meet the, the needs of the learners. But sometimes, on some occasions, you might be missing a trick in that, you know, if you ask the learners, okay, what would you like to get out of today? What that does for them is that that, that puts them in a position of, gosh, somebody's actually listening to me. Okay, we've been told to come here, but actually somebody's paying attention to me. And that's great. Now, as much as I can... I will try and fulfill those objectives. However, if you've got a day and whatever they want to do in addition is going to take you over and above that and you really can't do it, then I manage people's expectations and say, look, as much as I can, I'll try and meet those objectives. But if we don't have time, what I will do is signpost you to places where you'll, find, you'll be able to find out or I'll send you something on. You know, so that basically what I want to do at the beginning of a day is for my learners to be in the best possible position to actually start learning. And if there's any barriers like, oh, well, you know, my manager's just asked me to come here. I don't really want to be there. I want to get rid of those barriers. And so I feel through my experience, I've sort of learned that just asking people either beforehand in a survey, which is something I quite often do if I've got time to do that, I will say, so what would you like to get out of the day? Or if you don't have time or access to everybody's emails, then just on the morning, you know, as they're coming in, give them some post-its and, and put up a flip chart and say, can you just put, you know, on a flip chart, on the flip chart, on a post-it, what you would like to get out of today and have a look at it and then say to them, well, we can certainly do these, but we're going to have to um, perhaps, um, you know, park these other ones and I can send you some extra material on, on the others. So um, that's it, really. That's that's probably all I want to say about business-focused and learner-centred objectives. If you start me going on about how you actually set objectives, John, I could be talking for quite some time. Okay, well, we will stop there then. I'll jump in. All right, then. And do my host bit. Okay. So we said about business objectives then. So the learner part is then just literally speaking to them directly, if you can, beforehand to actually discuss quite ex openly what do, they, what do they actually want to get from the course, which I've, I have to admit I've done on occasion. Um, I don't always do because I can't always do by circumstance, but on occasion I have done it. And it is really valuable to get that conversation going in advance and get them thinking about why they really want to do it. And they're not just tourists looking for a great day out or, Absolutely. or trying to tick a box so they can say that they've done the development plan. Um, plus, for me as a, someone facilitating, it really helps me to kind of make sure that I am delivering what they need. Yeah. Which and makes me feel I, good. Yes, absolutely. Which is, after all, the point. Well, I might argue with you about that one, John. but I uh, thought you might. I thought yeah. you might. 
I mean, one of one of the one of the points that you've actually made there about those tourists, um, you also get those prisoners as well, don't you, who come along and they don't want to be there. And and I've had trainers say to me, so if you had somebody who said, actually, I don't want to be here, what would you do? I say, well, um, leave. Yeah, I saw you tweeted that, didn't you? You tweeted that I think yesterday. Don't be here. And I would, you know, I would speak to their line manager and say, look, you've sent this person. They don't want to be here. I have tried as much as I can to prepare them for the learning. They really don't want to be here. So, I, you know, you've got to think of the fact that if you've got 12, 15 people in a, in a workshop, you've got one person who could actually spoil the whole day just by their attitude. And I've had that in the past. I, I sometimes have had to learn the hard way, you know, about, you know, when to confront people and when to actually, you know, call it out really as it is, you know, to say to people, look, you don't want to be here, then go back to your desk. You know, that's fine. Sometimes, you know, people will turn around and say, oh, well, well, actually, I do really want to be here. I do. I was just, you know, trying to be controversial, whatever. But um, I think you've got to be brave. And that first that first secret, as I call it, um, that does require a bit of bravery, you know, trying to drill down into what's going on in the organisation. But also, um, if learners don't want to be there, talking to their line managers about it, sending them back to the desks. Yeah, I mean, it does involve a bit more bravery, as you say, because you're not you're moving away from delivering an off-the-shelf products that you're very comfortable with, that you understand the contents and the mechanics, to, to actually bespoking pretty much everything. Yeah. Which means you're always doing new stuff, which obviously is more difficult. It's more difficult, but I think in the long run it's more rewarding because what you will get is real business results and also the satisfaction that you're actually doing what the business needs. And, oh, it, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. sometimes it doesn't take major tweaking. It just needs you to sort of like pause and actually ask those questions. Is this what we really need? And it may be that just by asking that question, you can tweak it in such a way that actually makes all the difference, you know, the emphasis um, for those learners and also the organisation. So I, I think it's, for me, that is the most important of the five secrets. If you start with the right objectives, um, and I must, I must just mention um, Robert Major's um, framework for setting objectives. He, he has a framework, PCS, Performance Conditioning Standards, um, and that is an excellent framework, but um, I suspect we don't have time to go through that today either because again i could keep going on about it no we'll stop that we'll stop that first secret there so let's move on to the second one which was about being a facilitator not a trainer and this is something that we discussed on this podcast a few times actually i don't know if you've heard nick eve's podcast which was released a couple of months ago that was a really good exploration about what the facilitator does and um the last one we released just in december that was an interesting discussion as well that came up again about the difference between facilitator and trainer so do you want to talk us through what you mean by this? Yeah. Now, years ago, I was an IT trainer, and I do cringe when I look back. If I if I were a fly on the wall, I would be definitely cringing, looking back on on sort of the sort of things that I did. But actually, I just did what other trainers, other IT trainers, did at the time. And I worked in IBM at the time. It was a good company with a fantastic education centre, and so there was no reason for me to think that this wasn't a good way to do things. So, for example, you know, we had uh, notes that we gave out to people in, in a lovely workbook, uh, all printed up and everything. And um, 
I used to sort of like, if I saw anybody skipping ahead, I would say, no, no, we need to get on page 12. We're on page 12 now, so there's no point in skipping ahead. Um, and I used to tell people what they needed to know and didn't facilitate at all. And then I got sent on a week-long facilitation skills course by my line manager, and I was absolutely livid with her. I spent most of the week uh, sulking about it and then had the hugest light bulb uh, moment of my career when I realized, actually, that what, what the impact of being a facilitator or facilitating even a small amount can have on learners. And the thing that – there were two things, really, that impacted impacted me. The first is that you don't have to be an absolute expert because I used to run myself ragged in trying to learn everything there was that I needed to know in case a question popped up or, you know, I felt the conversation was going in a particular way. Um, and so it put an awful lot of pressure on me to be the fount of all knowledge really um, and the second thing is that uh, what I realized and I've realized over the years if, if I'm talking if I'm telling people stuff all the time um, and this this includes you John you can be thinking about whatever you could be thinking about your lunch you could be thinking about oh gosh it's windy out there whatever you can be thinking about absolutely anything while somebody's talking to you and telling you and in that telling trainer mode um, if I ask you a question, for instance, John, if I say to you, what's your favorite color? I defy you not to be thinking of your favorite color. So when we ask people questions, something different happens in the brain. The brain's always looking for answers. If it's posed a question, it's looking for answers. And so you immediately start to engage learners in a completely different way. And some people might say, well, look, do you know what? I've got a really knowledge heavy, content heavy subject you know so how can I be asking people because they don't know the stuff uh, well guessing is actually good I don't know whether you've come across Stella Collins new book neuroscience for learning development and um, I mean I knew this before but again if somebody wants to know more about it it's a good book to get and you know Stella talks about the fact that guessing is good because the brain starts to look for an answer and it's almost like preparing you to learn at a much deeper level than if you just tell somebody something because they can either accept it commit it to memory do something with it or not or just completely ignore it but when you ask questions if you say so what do you think the answer is even if they don't know even if it's an IT training session and they say so what button do you have to press and if you say to them well which button do you think you have to press and they start to look at the keyboard and think actually it's probably going to be this one or this combination or whatever and even if it's wrong their, their brain has already started to say you know okay oh right why is that right and why that why is that wrong and why is that right and so do you see do you see the difference John it's sort of like more engaging just even if you ask a few questions and that could be you know if it's um, knowledge heavy um, and, and a great example um, of that was um, I did some work with Yorkshire Building Society and um, some of their trainers hadn't really come across accelerated learning before. And one of the trainers, really lovely guy, said, um, really looking forward to this two days, Chris, but um, not sure what I'm going to learn because I, I get really great feedback and, you know, I know I'm a good trainer. And he wasn't saying it in a big headed way. He was just sort of being realistic. And I said, well, just be open minded. And, um, you know, whatever you do for your little training session, because they were doing um, these mini training sessions at the end of the two days, well, you know, just think about what topic you'd like to cover. 
And so he was um, doing a session on Experian checking, which is a fascinating subject. And um, so he did, um, he did like a flip chart with a table on it and he had the answers on slips of paper which we were then to arrange on this flip chart. So we were basically guessing what the answers were on this table. I think it was like a four by four grid. So we, we had a few minutes to guess and we guessed all the right answers which first of all surprised him anyway that we guessed it rather than him having to tell us about it. And then we did a check for learning by, he gave us um, a case study and we had to say what the rating, the credit rating would be. And at the end of the 15 minutes for this session that he delivered how you do um, experience checking, um, he turned around and said, you know, normally that has taken me an hour to deliver, an hour to talk about it. Um, and I don't even do a check for learning in that hour. And I've done this. I've they've they've learnt what the actual grid is about, and I've done a check for learning in fifteen minutes. So for me, that is a a beautiful example of how when you actually um, when you ask the learners what do you know or what do you think the answer is, and you know you facilitate it rather than just telling, you can do it much more more easily, quickly, and it's more memorable as well so um, the other thing about it is that I'm not saying that people don't go into trainer mode um, because I say be a facilitator not a trainer but Tim Galway I don't know whether you've come across his model at all John it's um, a three-pronged it's like in a triangle so at any time in a training room or a classroom you would seamlessly glide between the the three corners of the triangle and so you would be in facilitator mode you'd be in trainer mode and you'd also be in learner mode and I really like that model because you know when you start um, a training uh, program at the beginning of the day you have to be in trainer mode because you're telling them what's going to happen you know you're you're telling them perhaps um, about the housekeeping the objectives whatever and then there are times during the day as well again if it's knowledge um, heavy that you might be telling people because that's a uh, sometimes a good way to put um, information across uh, but you should be gliding between those three so you know you facilitate a little bit you might then go back to trainer mode but I like the fact that that, that one of the corners is about being a learner as well because the way that you know whether or not you should be in trainer or facilitator mode is because you're learning from them what's going on in the room and so you're adapting um, your style as you're going along um, as to what you should be doing. Should I be trainer? Should I facilitator? What should I be doing? Should I be just sitting back and just listening and learning from them? Um, and I always learn something from my learners. Um, no matter what I'm doing, what, no matter what topic I'm doing, I, I definitely know that I learn stuff from my learners. So that whole thing about <clears throat> being a facilitator, not a trainer, for me is about you know, make the learning easy for people. And for me, I know if I'm sitting, listening to somebody talking for any length of time and just looking through PowerPoints, that's hard. So I, it's about making it easy. So, and, and when, when we distinguish between trainer and facilitator, when we're saying trainer, we're meaning somebody who's giving the content, who's giving the answers, who's telling you the theory or whatever it is. Yeah. And when we say facilitator, we're somebody who's controlling the process. Yeah. So you're getting them to do the thinking, you're getting them to discuss or whatever, but you're, you're, you're not necessarily piling the content in. Absolutely. And the thing is, you know, you can't facilitate a whole 
course perhaps say on IT training or health and safety there's information that you have to give you know that some of it can be facilitated I, I would argue probably more than people think but you know there are times when you have to tell people stuff you know that this is the right way to do it or whatever there are rights and wrongs so you know but but yes the trainer is is traditionally sort of giving out information and the facilitator is much more about drawing out so you know in line with the previous podcast really about what what a facilitator role means right okay let's move on to the third one because as you said we have talked about that in a previous podcast yeah and i certainly agree with you that the idea of facilitation is much more powerful than training and also that you can do it a lot more than you think yes yeah and and it's not and it's not more time consuming which is what a lot of people think it is they haven't got time to do that but actually it's not more time consuming I would absolutely agree with you there, John. That's a really good summary. And and I think that example that I gave just shows, you know, when you have to talk through everything, can take you longer than if you actually let people explore, discover, guess, get their brains working, you know, get them doing stuff, get them engaged and involved. And it's more fun for the learner as well as being more effective. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So that was part one of me speaking to Christina and Please now listen to part two, which is good as well.